Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft. Coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, this very rich book, the book of Revelation. Before we get back into chapter 7 where we left off yesterday, I wanted to say a word about what we just prayed, the Our Father. For almost 10 years now, in this program here, Seeds of Truth, we have been opening up with the Our Father. Now, I know I devoted a whole month, month and a half into the Our Father on our special topic night, exploring each article of that prayer. I did just want to, again, uh, reinforce the importance of focusing in on what we are praying, to actually internalize the words, mindful that this is the prayer that our Lord taught us. Imagine living in Old Testament times, if you will, desiring to know how God would want us to pray, And then the people of God getting the opportunity to ask the God-man, Jesus Christ, how to pray, tells us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. And so we pray these words, mindful that this is how our Lord taught us to pray. A prayer that opens up so many vistas, so many avenues for us to walk down to in our reflections and how we are called to be a better and stronger Christian. My dear friends, the deeper we sink into the words we pray, the deeper and more profoundly we love. Why? Because prayer is like food, right? If you don't take care of your bodies, how are you going to do what you need to do physically? You can't. You will wear down. You will shrivel up. Well, spiritually, the same is to be said as it relates to prayer. If you do not pray, then you will shrivel up spiritually. You will atrophy spiritually. And so we are called to pray those words that our Lord called us to pray. And we do so mindful that prayer simply is conversation with God. And so these formal prayers open us up, strengthen our more regular prayer of conversation with God, where we take all of the things we do each and every day and we converse with God about it. You see, this is why praying the Our Father is so important. I start this program with the Our Father, that we might immediately enter into the spirit to which God calls us, that spirit of communion, that spirit of, well, what does the Our Father teach us? Forgiveness, huh? All those key elements that come from the very lips of Christ in the prayer he taught us, we are called to enter into. All right, it was on my heart to share that with you. So that being said, let us jump back into chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Now I know I read these verses at the the end of our last time together, but I want to reread these verses to talk about some of the same things, and in doing so, this will really allow us to go where we need to go. Okay, so if you have your Bibles out there, if you want to turn to chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, the great multitude. After this I looked and behold... A great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So, like I noted yesterday, whereas in chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, John saw the the 144,000 saved from Israel, in verses 9 to 12, he sees a group this time from every nation, from all tribes. So what is going on here? Well, simply, God saves Israel, yes, but also the Gentiles. This was a very important part of the new Exodus hope. Because in the first Exodus, God saved Israel by delivering them from the Egyptians. In the new Exodus, Israel will return to God, but this time the nations are coming with them. Because the everlasting covenant is what? Is Catholic. In the Greek, katholike. That means universal or international, right? Now those in this vision, they are holding palm branches in their hands. What's going on there? Well, palm branches were often used in the Old Testament to celebrate the restoration of the temple. Here in the book of Revelation, the saints are celebrating their admittance into the true temple of heaven. Amen to that. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, we have some similar language to that of Revelation 5, right? If you were to go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, what did we read? But the line of the tribe of Judah. In chapter 7, verse 5, we read of the tribes beginning with Judah. How about verse 6? The lamb standing. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we read of the great multitude standing before the lamb. In Revelation 5, verse 9, we read from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we read from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. How about verse 12 in both chapter 5 and 7? Chapter 5, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How about Revelation chapter 7, verse 12? Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. What is John doing here? He wants us to see that the saints in both chapters share in the same communion. And amen to that. Okay. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Some of my favorite verses. (laughs) Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and whence have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I know I already touched upon this in chapter 5, but I do want to go back to this a little bit. This Verse, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, this echoes Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, which says that when the time of distress comes, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white. Here, however, the language is more mysterious. I mean, how can clothes be made white by washing them in blood? Last time I talked about God's pure blood. 
But here, I want to go back to the Old Testament a little bit. Because the answer is that according to the law of Moses. The blood of certain sacrifices functioning as a kind of ritual cleanser. Serving to do what? Well, what does Leviticus chapter 8 verse 15 say? And Leviticus chapter 14 verse 14 say? To purify people and things. And you and I both know, my dear friends, as Christ is the fulfillment to the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, that these purification rites are fulfilled in our Lord's blood, which would be a shorthand way of speaking about his sacrifice on the cross, of course. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 uses the same image, does he not? That Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. Now, although salvation comes entirely from God, we know that freedom, human freedom, plays a necessary role. Look at verse 14 closely. It really does focus on the action of God's people. They have washed their robes and made them white. How did human beings cleanse their robes? Robes, of course, representing themselves and their conduct in Christ's blood. Well, they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb by accepting the gospel, the good news, the transforming message of Jesus Christ, by believing in Jesus, by repenting of their sins, and of course by being baptized. They survived the, the great distress, right, by perseverance, persevering in faith. So to wash our clothes in the blood of the Lamb is to embrace, in the end, the gospel message, mindful of that great passage that comes to us from James' epistle, that faith without works is dead. We live in God for other. We come to know him so as to make him known. We receive the gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, so as to better understand the task. If we are going to know and have a better understanding of what is going on around us in the external activity, we must first draw from that internal source of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the person of Jesus Christ. So those verses loom large for us again. Those verses that speak to the robes being made white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, how about chapter 7, verses 15 to 17? Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night within his temple, and he who sits upon the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here, God is pictured as one who is the shelter for his people. Later on, we are told that God and the Lamb actually are the temple of heaven right? Those who enter heaven actually enter into the life of God. Remember the point we've made in the past as it relates to baptism itself and our Lord's exhortation to the apostles to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that verse, but what's interesting is if you get into the Greek, the better translation is baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? So you have this language of just not in, but into the very life of God where you are sharing his life and his love. And remember that when you talk about sharing in Christ's love, we know what this love looks like. This is a love 
that has been revealed on the cross. So the love that the Godhead shares is based in what kind of love? Sacrificial love. So we enter into Christ's love and we do so by way of sacrifice, by way of sacrifice. Incidentally, the word sacrifice in the Latin secumfice means what? To make holy, to make holy. This is why I talked extensively the other day about the importance of uniting our excruciating pain to the cross of Christ, mindful that the word excruciating means what in the Latin? From the cross. Suffering is a part of our very vocation as Christians and Catholics, and this is what we are called to enter into. And in doing this, <laughs> we are made white, white like the blood of the Lamb. So indeed, the, the living waters here, as we shall see in Revelation 22 and as touched upon, can be best understood as just not the Holy Spirit, but a life in the Spirit. And, and you know, I was on my way over here this evening, and what was impressed upon my heart was to reflect at least a little bit into one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, piety, counsel, fortitude, and fear of the Lord. We also have the fruits of the Spirit, among others, certainly joy, peace, uh, gentleness, and reverence. I want to just ever so briefly talk about this call we have to counsel, and specifically within the context of the spiritual work of mercy, counseling the doubtful. Now, the first spiritual work of mercy, as I've talked about in our special topic night on mercy, is what? But admonishing the sinner. The second spiritual work of mercy is to instruct the ignorant. The third spiritual work of mercy is counseling the doubtful. Counseling the doubtful. Now, at first glance, counseling the doubtful may seem something similar to instructing the ignorant. However, teaching has learning as its goal, while counseling aims to assist with what? Making right decisions. Now, this is very important for us because as we reflect into the book of Revelation and what it means to draw from the living waters, in drinking from the living waters, we are called to then live what? But the spiritual works of mercy, and as we're drawing out now, this spiritual work of mercy of counseling the doubtful. So while counsel uh, includes some aspect of teaching, such as maybe providing information and perspective, its primary purpose is to assist a person in coming to a decision. Now this distinction can actually be found in the root meaning of the word counsel, uh, the English word counsel comes from the Latin concilium, con, which translates as with, and cilium as a decision. So to counsel means to assist someone in the act of deciding, to assist someone in the act of deciding. As such, counsel is connected to the great cardinal virtue of prudence. Prudence is that virtue which directs particular human acts towards a good end, right? In modern usage, uh, prudence, and by extension, counsel, has often been equated with what? But caution. Prudence is not caution, but the virtue that sees the best way forward given the goals in mind. Prudence, by its very definition, is about being sagacious, huh? 
acutely aware of the kind of long-term impact your current decision has on yourself and the people around you. Now, that being said, the prudent response to a situation is not always the cautious one. Sometimes the prudent thing to do involves a what? But a, a bold or zealous response. Now, since we are speaking of this spiritual work of mercy to counsel the doubtful, the goal in this case refers to that which is moral and rooted in our final end of holiness and salvation. And really, this is why I'm talking about this particular spiritual gift and this particular spiritual work of mercy, because this is what the book of Revelation is so much about. So the work of giving counsel does not mean just counseling the skeptic. While a doubtful person uh, may be skeptical of certain truths, the doubt we speak of, again, is more about bringing a person to make a sound decision. Here again, the, the Latin helps us, huh? The word doubt comes from the Latin word dubious, meaning uncertain. However, even more deeply, the Latin prefix is duo. So the Latin dubium is a choice between two things. And thus, the doubtful are who? The undecided. Those of two minds on a a certain matter, or as some would call it, the double-minded. So this spiritual work of mercy is a work that helps the undecided or those of two minds on something, if you will, to, to come to a good and upright decision rooted in the call to holiness and the goal of attaining heaven by God's grace. I mean, we really should start to see and appreciate this particular spiritual work of mercy as a great work of mercy. What a beautiful work of mercy it is to help better orient others toward their heavenly goal by assisting them in choosing the most virtuous and holiest way forward in a difficult or puzzling situation. Something I think we are really called to be present to. And I know for some of us, this is our very vocation, right? So we better be equipped to provide this beautiful work of mercy. We must first be docile to the will and mind of God, huh? We must be well instructed in heavenly wisdom, which is often so, so paradoxical to the worldly-minded. My dear friends, the capacity to give spiritual counsel grows out of a deep prayer life. What did I talk about from the outset in relationship to prayer, huh? Good spiritual counsel grows out of a, out of a deep prayer life, out of the study of Scripture, and the experience of living as a, as a faithful Christian in the world. Here I am made to think of St. Paul's words to Titus in chapter 2. And as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, and all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, and verses 7 to 8. And so again, my friends, we ought to regard at the highest level the importance of being counseled and counseling others, that we might become more deeply rooted in, in the decision to follow Jesus, to choose the Lord and the things awaiting in heaven, to leave behind double-minded ways and duplicity, to decide for what is true, good, and beautiful. So these are the things that I was made to reflect with out from uh, these verses in verses 15 to 17, especially when you start to talk about these living waters, these waters that give life. Okay, 
what else could be said here in these verses, verses 15 to 17? Well, there are several allusions here to Isaiah's vision of the new exodus. And uh, Michael Barber goes through these in his book, Coming Soon. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we read of the 12 tribes will be restored. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, we read of what? The 12 tribes are restored. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we read that the nations will be saved. Well, in verses 9 to 12 of Revelation, we read what? That the nations are saved. In 49, verse 10, we read, there shall not hunger or thirst. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 16, we read, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Isaiah verse 10, neither scorching wind nor sun shall smite them. Revelation 7 verse 16, the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. And there are other verses. For the Lord has comforted his people. In 49 verse 13, Revelation 7 verse 17, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John evokes Isaiah 49 because again he wants us to see that Jesus has not only fulfilled the Old Testament, but at once transformed it and perfected it so that when we share in it, we might give glory to God all the more. This passage also evokes Ezekiel 34 concerning the restoration of Israel. In this passage, the Lord explains that Israel is his sheep and that he will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And again, this will happen through the Messiah. So there's this constancy of promise and fulfillment all throughout the book of Revelation. Brothers and sisters, Revelation chapter 7 shows us God's faithfulness to his promise to restore Israel. As impossible as it seemed, God knew where the tribes of Israel were and was able to restore them. Moreover, God transformed the horror of exile into hope, hope for the nations. This is what the crucifixion does. What is horrific now becomes our hope. And so through their captivity, through the, the Israelite exile, God was able to extend his mercy to the nations who had taken the tribes of Israel away. And there is even a deeper lesson here, something that Michael Barber highlights. As we mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, Return from the exile symbolizes deliverance from sin. Therefore, just as God was able to save Israel, which seemed to be lost and forsaken, never to return again, so too God is able to save any and every sinner, no matter how far he wanders away. Just to say that, I'm sure, evokes images of the parable of the prodigal son. The father has two sons, one who remains and one who goes off to a far country and ends up eating with the unclean swine. You know the story. The son finally returns home and the father slaughters the fatted calf. Here we have the story of God the Father's forgiveness for sinners painted in terms of Israel's exile. So for just as one son, representing Judah, remained at home the other son went off to the nations, like northern Israel, like those ten tribes went up north, right, to worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Yet Israel returns when the calf is slain, when they reject their sin of idolatry. You see what's going on there? The parallel, isn't that beautiful? God spares no expense to find his children. We can run 
Oh, we can run far and wide, but we cannot hide. Remember what we talked about as it relates to the eyes on one of those living creatures that God is all-knowing? Was that not an important piece for us to appreciate our relationship with God? And, and did we not hit the pause button to reflect into the importance of what that means and how it ought to convict us to live a more vibrant and transparent life? No matter how far we go away from him, my friends, he is always ready and willing to bring us back home. Moreover, just as God transformed the effects of the exile into salvation for the nations, he does the same with our sinful lives. The great St. Thomas explained that just as God uses matter in all the sacraments to give grace, bread, wine, and oil, in the sacrament of confession, God transforms our very sins into vehicles of grace. What is going on here? Well, our sins teach us that we are weak and needful of grace and also show us God's great mercy. The end point is this, my friends, that our sins now forgiven teach us to hate sin even more and they bring us closer to God. My daughter came up to me a few weeks ago. She says, you know, Dad, we are to never use the word hate, right? And I said, yeah, with the exception of one thing. And she looked at me a little surprised. What do you mean, Dad? <laughs> well, we are to hate sin. We are to hate sin. We are to despise sin because we know where it comes from, that indeed it is the seed of the adversary. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are running out of time. I just wanted to close with one last reflection. You know, Revelation is often regarded as a book of doom and gloom, and certainly it includes some frightening visions for some of us. I get that. But it is very important to bear in mind the reassurance and extraordinary beauty of its consoling visions like the visions we had in this chapter. The first tells us that all followers of Jesus are sealed, marked as belonging to and protected by God. For the trials and hardships that lie ahead, yeah, we know they are there, but we have God at our side. We belong to his army of witnesses, and we are called to conquer in a battle that the Lamb is waging to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. We know the outcome. We know that the nature of our struggle is one where we need to be dependent upon grace. This is what we were just talking about. And so we lean into that great truth that in the end, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.